Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be almost a false read like a Band-Aid you put on your arm. Touchdown! Alabama wins! Jack Nicklaus wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship. At the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters. This is the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here's Dr. Michael Ryan. Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, athletic trainers, therapists, coaches, and fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is a podcast for athletes, competitors, athletic trainers, therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, athletic trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, passionate fan or occasional observer. We hope to bring you into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury. On this week's episode of the Victory Over Injury podcast, we welcome a guest with keen insight, exceptional experience, intelligent philosophies, pervasive influence, and entertaining stories with an energetic charisma. Dr. Kevin Wilk is one of the highest regarded physical therapists in the sports medicine world with over 35 years of experience treating all types of patients from the non-athlete hoping to return to work in full function to the highest level professional athletes on the planet. He received his degree in physical therapy from Northwestern University in Chicago and his doctorate of physical therapy from the Massachusetts General Institute of Healthcare Professionals in Boston. Kevin is the Associate Clinical Director of Champion Sports Medicine, the Director of Rehabilitation at the American Sports Medicine Institute, and is an Adjunct Assistant Professor at the PT Program at Marquette University. He has worked in Major League Baseball for 29 years and was a consultant for the Tampa Bay Rays. Dr. Wilk has been extensively involved in laboratory, biomechanical, and clinical research and has published over 170 journal articles, 115 book chapters, edited nine textbooks, and lectured at over 900 professional and scientific meetings, and is on the editorial review board of 10 journals. He's an active member in multiple societies, including the APTA, AAOS, and AOSSM. He has been bestowed several prestigious awards, including induction into the Turner A. Blackburn Hall of Fame, which is the sports section of the APTA, the APTA Catherine Worthingham Fellowship, which is the highest honor given to an APTA member, the Ronald G. Payton Award for Career Achievement from the Sports Physical Therapy section of the APTA, and the James Andrews Award for Achievement in Baseball Science, and he has a traveling fellowship named after him by the APTA, among several other awards. He has been an honored professor and given numerous grand rounds at universities across the nation. Dr. Wilk works alongside many of the country's best orthopedic sports medicine surgeons and physicians, including Dr. James Andrews. Among the many professional athletes he has exclusively worked with include Michael Jordan, Bo Jackson, Charles Barkley, Derek Jeter, Drew Brees, Triple H, Hulk Hogan, John Cena, Scottie Pippen, Tom Watson, Roger Clemens, Mariano Rivera, John Smoltz, Eli Manning, and many others. 
We could not be more thrilled and thankful to begin this week's journey with Dr. Kevin Wilk. Kevin, thank you so much for taking time out of your insanely busy schedule to be here with us to enlighten us. It is truly an honor. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Dr. Ryan. I think we should get some started. Uh, I always like to kind of get an understanding of where people come from. So you're not originally from Birmingham, obviously, uh, as I can tell by the lack of accent, as people ask me where I'm from all the time. No, I'm actually from Chicago, Illinois. That's where I grew up, went to school. As far as growing up, what, what sports did you like? Yeah, actually, growing up, I was a bit of an athlete, uh, even though I'm short. Played football, basketball, and baseball in high school, and fortunately won state in baseball, uh, which is an accomplishment. Got an opportunity to play at White Sox Park, Wrigley Field, consecutive years, so that was good, but not a, not good enough to play at the next level. So I always had an interest in sports, just not good enough to do it professionally, unfortunately. I can clearly identify with that, yeah. And as far as, you know, growing up, obviously playing a lot of sports, you were clearly a little bit competitive. What were you like as a kid? I mean, personality-wise, how would you describe yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think I was uh, your typical kind of inner-city athlete, so to speak, that school was a little bit of a secondary type of thing, that sports were more important through about half of my life, and then uh, uh, realized that maybe I need to get a little more serious in college and start cracking down on the books a little bit. And actually, my aspirations in college uh, was to be a coach. And then I have got kind of sidetracked by an individual that gave me some guidance uh, to look at the medical field. Gotcha. And who, who was that uh, influential person for you? Yeah, it was actually two people. One was a, one of the strength coaches with the Cowboys at the time. Uh, when I was in college the first time, I uh, ran some health clubs on, on the side between classes and stuff like that. I managed the health club. And so we went through the certification. So one of the certification instructors was uh, assistant strength coach with the Dallas Cowboys. And he said, you know, you got to get into sports medicine. You have kind of a knack for it. I said, yeah, you know, it's definitely better than probably managing health clubs, uh, which the hours are long. And, you know, it's a good job, but nevertheless, maybe not for me. And so I, I started to take classes and I met a trainer at the University of Chicago who said, well, you know, you don't want to be a, a trainer or something like that. You know, it's long hours and, you know, maybe you won't get quite the salary that you aspire, aspire to. You got to be a physical therapist. I, I didn't really know anything about physical therapy. And so I started putting in time at the University of Chicago with this athletic trainer to get hours and things like that and just get my feet wet. And that's how I got to apply to physical therapy school. So it was a roundabout way, but it was actually influenced by an individual who kind of gave me the guidance. You mentioned that he said that um, he saw that you had some sort of knack towards sports medicine. What was, what was it in you that he saw that thought it was more than just liking sports? You know, I asked a lot of stupid questions. Why do these people get hurt? And, you know, what, what, what's the best exercise? And, and just kind of things I was kind of curious about, you know, being an athlete and having injuries and, you know, why does my big toe hurt all the time? You know, I didn't know anything about a turf toe back then and those types of things. So he, he was great. You know, he had worked with the Olympic team as well and uh, was very patient with me. <laughs> to say the least. Interesting. <laughs> you mentioned you had turf toe. you had any other injuries of note growing up? No, I was actually very lucky playing sports, probably because I wasn't very good. I didn't really have any injuries. And, you know, back then, you kind of just taped it up. <laughs> and uh, my dad was an individual that didn't really believe in going to the hospital unless it was sticking out, Yes, you know, the bone. <laughs> and a lot of blood, so uh, that's why my fingers are shaped like this, Dr. Ryan. You probably want to fix those. Yeah. I've got a lot of crooked fingers we from broken out, yeah. Yeah, broken fingers playing Sandlot. Gotcha. And so um, he thought he was a doctor, 
Uh, I can show you some scars, too, on my head from the stitches that he tried to put in and butterfly. And um, so <laughs> that was the sidetrack yeah. to it, you know? Yeah. I never really got, fortunately, hurt, though. And I had friends, unfortunately, that were very good athletes in college that had some really bad injuries back then. And, you know, they weren't really managed very well just because times have changed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think that um, the, there's definitely been a shift in terms of how we approach, you know, treatment of injuries. It's very interesting. You know, you mentioned your, your dad. What was your family life like? Did you have siblings and growing up? Obviously, it sounds like, you know, much like it was several years ago. If, if it wasn't sticking out, people didn't need to go to the hospital. Yeah, and you know, my parents owned a store on the south side of Chicago, so um, you know, the store was open like 14 hours a day. So my brothers and I, we basically worked in the store. If I wasn't playing sports, I was working in the store. So consequently, I played a lot of sports uh, <laughs> and you know enjoyed it. But fortunately for me, uh, the store was right across the street from the park. So I would just get a yell, you know, my name by my mom, who had a great voice, to come home and work in the store, you know, put in your time. Gotcha. Yeah. And we'll get into this later, but obviously you have an exceptional work ethic. Do you think some of that experience working in your family store instilled that in you yeah for sure you know you had to do a lot of stocking so if i had a couple games you know little league or whatever or, or we had what's called pony league back then uh you got done with your game you know even if it was in the evening you'd have to come home and stock your shelf so yeah. it was just part of it yeah now is that, that was your first job yeah off, I assume. yeah i just didn't get paid <laughs> <laughs> first volunteer job wonderful <laughs> Yeah, so going on, obviously you mentioned that you worked as a health club manager, worked the front office at the, the Ritz, and then kind of moved on. So you've always been involved in sort of whether it's you know fitness or physical therapy or something to that extent. And then you know you end up moving on uh, Northwestern for your for your BS in physical therapy, and it, you started a master's. Is that correct? Yeah, I started a master's a bunch of times. Okay. Uh, so in Chicago, back at Northwestern, and then I I moved to Birmingham. So then I started up again at the University of Alabama Birmingham, which was right down the street, but. My job, like a lot of people's, like yourselves and, and other people, is very demanding. So classes didn't back then really fit into the formula. Now so much is online, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But when I was trying to work on my master's, this is, you know, I hate to say how many years ago, it was not very accessible. You had a yeah. two o'clock in the afternoon make a class, and it was just impossible if you're going to give quality of care gotcha. and be dedicated to the patients that you're trying to treat. Gotcha. So you, you forewent the master's and, and skipped to a doctorate, correct? Yeah. Yeah, why mess with that? Why mess with that? Just go straight for the, for the top. Yeah, so. but it was also available by some classes attending, but more importantly, online. Got it. Yeah. And was there a reason you chose MassGen? Uh, actually, peer pressure. A lot of my colleagues had been taking classes through that program and highly recommended it. So it was a highly recommended program. Did you do some extra training and, and some rehab up in Boston as well at the time? No, actually you didn't have to. You had to take a couple classes and do some things online and obviously publications and research. And fortunately with American Sports Medicine Institute here in Birmingham, which was you know, right uh, adjacent to the clinic, I was able to do some of those research endeavors. So, gotcha. and, and here we've always been interested in doing research, so it was just a good excuse to do more, to be right. quite honest, and, right. and get other people involved. That transition, I think, is very interesting. Um, obviously, being from you know the Midwest, uh, Chicago, and spending a lot of your time up there, people have asked me how I ended up in Birmingham as obviously a non-native, and I hear that question asked to a lot of people who are not from here. What was it that brought you down here? 
Yeah, you know, I was working at a, a very successful clinic with great physicians. We were taking care of the White Sox at the time, so I had an affiliation with the White Sox, and and it started lecturing at meetings and conferences, medical meetings, and so one of the gentlemen that I met at one of these meetings was Dr. James Andrews. So we just kind of hit it off, and uh, he said, why don't you move to Birmingham? And I said, you know, Birmingham what? And, you know, again, I'm a city guy, so uh, I didn't really know Birmingham very well. I knew of the University of Alabama and Bear Bryant and all that kind of stuff, but that was the extent of it. So he started to fill me in and uh, made a couple of visits down here, and he's a very persuasive guy, and basically told me about the vision that they had here as far as the center and expanding sports medicine. When I first came here, um, it was a really small facility. So I, I think that this is a very interesting point, too. I mean, obviously... Dr. Andrews, as you just said, was part of the reason you, you came down here. What was that situation like where, or where you're meeting James Andrews for the first time? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely intimidating, you know, being at a conference and listening and learning from him and then him having some interest in what I was saying and then, you know, approaching me and saying, you know, you ever think about changing and moving and, and this and that. Um, so it, w- it was great. It was very flattering, to say the least. But, you know, then I had to sell it to my, my wife and kids. Having always grown up in the city in Chicago, you know, moving to the South was a big step. And so we had to, I don't want to say come to grips with it, but basically kind of experience it and see the major advantages of moving and, you know, the lifestyle and things like that. And my wife and I and, and kids, for that matter, our kids were very young at the time that we moved, which made it a lot easier. But, you know, we just liked it. You know, we've kind of fell in love with it. Uh, not necessarily right away, but I would say, you know, as you spend five or six days and you take more and more in, you're like, this is pretty cool down here. Easier to get around, more livable, uh, better weather, people are friendly. And again, Dr. Andrews, as well as at the time it was Health South, they really sold us on the vision of what was going to happen. I'm not sure I believed it all. Uh, being from the south side of Chicago, I was a little skeptical. But the vision was we're going to build this big hospital and all these athletes are going to come and we're going to have, you know, 30 doctors and big PT clinic and world-renowned. It sounded fantastic. It sounded exactly what I wanted, but I wasn't quite sure it was all going to happen. But it certainly did and four times more than I ever thought. When you think about a situation like that, I guess to put in context, during his career, at what point was Dr. Andrews at? when he had this conversation with you was he he clearly wasn't as well known as he is currently or was he yeah he was pretty pretty far up there in the recognition scale so to speak or ladder uh he had you know perfected a couple procedures that were named after him the andrews knee procedure you know the extra articular acl uh he had just come from the houston clinic so he he was a very significant name on the program at, at conferences but i will say you know, the practice was building. It was certainly super busy with patients, but, you know, as far as seeing professional athletes, he certainly was seeing them at the Houston Clinic and some here, but it was nowhere near what was going to happen. Interesting. So here you have one of the bigger names in sports medicine at the time, which, if you put it in perspective, it really wasn't a field unto its own. Really, Dr. Andrews and a lot of the guys from Houston Clinic and at that time were, were some of the godfathers of sports medicine as we know it today. So, you know, here you have, though, one of the creators of sports medicine asking you to move to Birmingham with him. What is it in you that you think that he saw 
because you have a, you have a renowned physician, renowned surgeon who could really ask anybody. Why do he ask you? I'm not sure to this day. I think you know whatever we hit it off from a personality standpoint. I think we had similar goals, similar work ethics. I mean, I think it's pretty pretty impressive to have an experience of of one meeting and whether it's you know just watching you present or watching you give some research and asking you to make a move. That really says a lot about you uh, coming from someone as well renowned as Dr. Andrews. I think it's very impressive. Thank you. Yeah. So when you got down here, what was the experience like in your first year or two, a couple of years of, of working with Dr. Andrews and this sort of collaboration? Well, it was certainly a change. It was a change in so much uh, the type of patients we were seeing compared to Chicago. It was a little bit different clientele. His approach was totally different. Uh, he was a lot more aggressive than what I was familiar with. Really pushed the envelope with rehabilitation. And, you know, when I kind of reflect on that, time you know coming down here even though i had worked in the baseball community we didn't really know much about shoulders and elbows when you think about it 30 33 years ago dr job and tommy john procedure you know hadn't occurred or just about ready to occur i remember the exact year but it was right around that time so our care for shoulders and elbows was pretty primitive it was really more of a knee practice in sports medicine and hip was pretty much non-existent Mm -hmm. to see some of these things elbows and shoulders on a regular basis was really enlightening so it was kind of one of those things where you just kept your eyes open your mouth shut and you asked questions at the right time because it was really a learning opportunity at pretty much every minute of the day to be quite direct interesting and when you you say he was a little bit more aggressive or kind of pushing the envelope with respect to his treatment of these shoulder and elbow injuries and, and, and rehabilitation. Can you give some examples of what you mean by that at, at the time? Back then, after a shoulder surgery, he didn't move it very much. He didn't even move a knee, you know, an ACL. They were put in the cast. And so here we come down here and, you know, you think you're going to the south and maybe it's a little bit slower with medical care because you're coming from the big city. It was almost the opposite. Uh, you know, you had to step back and go, hang on, uh, because he's moving knees right away. He's moving shoulders right away. And, uh, you know, trying to reassure you that it's okay. <laughs> and after you've done it one way for five or six years, you're like, ooh, I guess it is okay. Uh, let's find out. So it was, like I say, it was, you know, just hang on and, and learn every second and, and just take it in. Yeah. It's very interesting you say that because as a fellow here, when I, I came down and I came much like you from a larger city, I came from New York after doing residency and you can see that that mentality has kind of seeped into the minds of the, the surgeons he's trained and in particular, Drs. Kane Dugas and Emblem here, because I remember as a fellow walking in and thinking the same thing, you know, it, it, the word is aggressive, but it's not aggressive in, in a negative fashion. It's it's a it's a pushing the envelope in a good way, um, and you see the ability of of these surgeons to treat athletes at the highest level. That when you go back and you think about the textbook, it's not in there. These guys are on a different level, and it's very interesting to hear you say that because the the doctors and surgeons he has trained are are the same way. Yeah, um, which I think is very very fascinating. Yeah, when you think back on that time, just the for the listeners to put in perspective, you know, an ACL back then was casted for six weeks. Today, if if you don't move it right away or they don't get their extension, you know, their knee straight right away, you're basically clinicians are getting very upset and very worried about the knee as far as progression. But 
back then you were casted for six weeks. So again, that whole shift in in in, in treatment philosophy and application, you know, was happening and it was happening here and it was fun. Yeah. I can't imagine to see the evolution of that. And and I guess speaking to that, um, you know, I, I obviously as you mentioned so much has evolved since you first got here. I mean, even going back to the way they used to fix rotator cuffs, it was all done open. What do you think has been so important as far as, uh, you know, not only Dr. Andrews, but the doctors you work with currently seeing that evolution? What has been the most, I guess, important thing that you've seen kind of come out of this from from your standpoint of being able to treat patients effectively? I think that's a a difficult question to answer in probably the next four hours um, <laughs> because I mean I think so many areas have right. changed one is just from uh, the basic philosophy is the team approach the communication between the physician and the therapist athletic trainer and that's really a, a point that all the physicians here which we're quite proud of try to live by and that's something that Dr. Andrews cut the path on is it's a team approach it's all of us working together it starts with communication the physician interacting and not thinking they're too busy, quite honestly and quite directly, they're not too busy to pick up the phone or write a note to the therapist or trainer and say, you know, this is what's going on with the patient, opposed to, you know, just the prescription. So we we know a little bit more about the patient. I think that allows us to push the envelope sometimes. And sometimes push the envelope means the whole back. You push the envelope initially slow, and then maybe you speed it up later, you know, because things weren't quite perfect in that joint and so go initially a little bit slower so you know I, I think that team approach is invaluable and that's that's something that's an intangible uh, other things are obviously we try to do a lot of research here uh, with yourself and the other physicians as well as the rehab staff to see you know what we're doing is it effective and is there a better way so the outcomes the the evidence-based practice of medicine is is critical in our minds here. So we're not just saying, hey, let's just be different to be different and push the envelope, but let's be different or not necessarily different, but let's push the envelope to see if we get a better outcome for the patient. Uh, Can they get back to work sooner? Can they get back to sport? And is it safe long term? Or are we just going fast and is there a problem? Right. I think your point that you made about the communication and it being a team effort is is incredibly important and i think that that is probably why dr andrews and this practice have been so successful at treating athletes because i've witnessed a lot of other sort of you know practices whether it's the residency or medical school where you have really good surgeons and they can do a really really good surgery um, but I just I never got the sense that they had the same connection that they do with their physical therapists, uh, with their athletic trainers, uh, and the whole team approach. Would you say that Dr. Andrews helped establish that, and you were a part of that in terms of making sure that that was the optimal communication sort of framework? I think you hit the nail on the head, Mike, to be honest. Uh, I'm very direct about it. I think he, he did, and there's levels of that communication. There's that casual conversation that's very superficial or there's a little deeper conversation doesn't mean it have to be longer but just more in depth if that makes sense giving more particulars about the surgery or that person's joint or their personality too you know hey this patient is an aggressive athlete and he's telling me you know this is the physician informing me now maybe it's a dr dugas or dr kane or your patient or dr andrew this is an athlete who's super aggressive and i'm a little worried about him you know maybe kind of slow him down a little bit 
that's not going to be in an op report. That's not going to be on a prescription. And we're slowing him down for his own good or her her good in this particular scenario. So that's the the team approach is the psyche as well as the physical aspect of the surgery. The the other aspect is, you know, there is a psychology to all these injuries and rehab, and the physician sometimes has that insight much better than us. Eventually, I think we're better in the rehab because we spend so much time with them. But initially, I think the patient you know, confides in you <laughs> and tells the you know tells you what's been going on with their knee, shoulder, elbow, and what their aspirations are and their concerns, their fears, and and and, and goals. I think you make a, a really good point on that as well. We as surgeons probably fail to really adequately meet the psychological aspect of an injury um, because to us we're very objective about it. We have trained to do this over and over again. So us, it's. It's just another ACL. Um, but I can tell you from my fellowship experience, when you see a, a high-level athlete go down on the field, and it's the first time they've injured an ACL, or maybe they've done it before, but it's, it's a time in their career that's very valuable, you can visibly see their mind turning, realizing how is this going to affect my career long-term. Oh, yeah. And so I think that, you know, I, I think you make a good point, but my question is to you is, you know, there's a, I think there's a difference between the actual injury sort of mental aspect and then the recovery aspect. What do you think is, um, you know, the, the most difficult aspect that you've seen or the most challenging aspect you've seen on a day-to-day basis, whether it's an elite athlete or, a, or you know, run-of-the-mill sort of patient who doesn't perform elite athletics? What's the most difficult part um, mentally of, of going through all that? Yeah, I think it's been shown recently with a lot of really good studies from around the world with even ACLs, which is probably the most published injury in sports medicine, um, you know, people have a fear of re-injury. Whether you're a pro athlete or recreational person or just an everyday person who happens to ski periodically and injure their, their knee, unfortunately, tears their ACL, they're concerned to go back to skiing, let's say, is I don't want to hurt it again. I don't know if I can. It's sort of like I fell off the horse and I don't want to get back on. So there's a certain psychology about that. And there was a couple of nice studies done which showed that that's the number one reason people don't make it back to pre-injury level is fear of re-injury. And I think, you know, we as healthcare professionals, we need to obviously address that. And I think that's a big component in the rehab is the do things that builds confidence. I'm often looking for statements like, geez, I didn't think I was able to do that or my operative knee is actually feeling better than my other side. Boy, that's weird. Or, boy, I really feel good about this. I'm in even better shape than I was before. I wish I was doing this before. I might not have been injured. Those are some of the phrases I hope my patients say to me because I know we're on the right track. But there is a huge psychology or psychological ramification to the injury. And the classic is the recreational athlete who skis, wipes out, tears their ACL, and then right after surgery I ask them, are you going to ski again? And they say, heck no, I don't even want to see snow again. I'm afraid to walk on (laughs) on snow or ice. And I know that's a person that we have to mentally address that, that you're going to be okay. I'm not saying you have to go out there and do a black diamond, but hey, you got to feel good about your knee that if you ever wanted to ski, you could. That's why you had surgery and went through all the pain of surgery and rehabilitation. Yeah. And that, that term is kinesiophobia. Is that the official medical term? Yes. Do you have any specific athletes that you have in mind that have really had to battle that? They have all the physical attributes, but just couldn't get over that. Yeah. You know, when it first came out, the initial article out of Australia, I was a little taken back by because I hadn't really seen it in the high-level athletes that I normally deal with. 
I didn't really experience it firsthand on a regular basis, at least not that I was aware of. It might have been going on, but I wasn't aware of it. That's the other aspect of it. And then I had a couple pro athletes, one an NBA player who definitely had it and actually even confided in me that he had a major concern. That, And some of it is also, is my skill level going to be the same? Am I going to be the same player? Am I going to you know, get released? You know, those are some of the other aspects of the psychological aspect of the injury. So you have to reassure them that, hey, you're going to make it back at the same level or fairly close, and it's something you have to work at. It may take an additional year, and people have to be patient with it. And sometimes in, in sports, people aren't patient, uh, whether it be the athlete or the team or the coach. Uh, so there's a time frame on some of these injuries. You see with Tommy John surgery all the time that their first year back, they're not quite as good of a pitcher, but that second year, they're fantastic. And so are there things that when you start to recognize that in an athlete um, that either, as you mentioned, you reassure them or are there objective things that you can point to them to say, hey, actually, you know, you, you're, you're right on track. You're doing well. Look at look at these numbers or, you know, what, what do you use and what tools do you use to, to help them through that? Yeah, you know, that's a great point. It depends, you know, really on the injury and what we're rehabbing. If it's a knee, it's a lot of times particular drills and it's sometimes... You know, it's pretty edgy drills, so to speak. You know, you're on an unstable surface like a rocker board or a BOSU ball or a stability ball, and you're doing things that maybe you didn't even know you could do, you know, or should do at this time. And so it's a little edgy or a little bit um, risky. And I'm like, wow, I, I did that. That builds confidence. I can tell you all day that you look good and your knee looks good, and I think you're even better than you were before. But unless you believe it, or you feel it, it's just verbiage. Yeah. Does, that, does that make sense? So they've got to be able to feel that difference and reassure themselves, wow, I'm, I am good, you know, I am doing well. And a lot of times we use video as well. There's a lot of really nice apps out there now where we can use our phone or an iPad or something like that, video them and actually show them, like for a thrower after a Tommy John, look at your mechanics or a jumping athlete, like a volleyball player, basketball player, jump and land. Look where your knee is. That's exactly where we want it. You didn't have that before. And we can compare those videos from time to time. Yeah, I think it's great. I, I mean, I've seen several of your videos of the, the, and the word you use is perturbations, correct? Did you develop that? Yeah, sort of. There was a couple of us working on that about the same time. So I hate to take credit for it, but there was uh, some work being done at the University of Delaware with a young lady, uh, Lynn Snyder Mack. Uh, and Lynn was kind of developing the same thing, and we were talking at meetings. So we were kind of working parallel, which is always fun as well. Mm-hmm. And there were some things coming out of Australia at the same time and Europe as well. So I think, you know, these ideas are out there. And, you know, I think you just kind of grab them out of space and you just run with them so i think there's a lot of us working in parallel at the same time and when you think about a you know an idea like you know creating instability um and as you mentioned not only is it beneficial from an objective you know musculoskeletal stability standpoint but obviously you can also then point to that from a a psychological standpoint as you just mentioned like hey you're able to maintain stability so it's twofold where where do you think that, that that idea came from is that something that just by reading a lot or is it by experience or did you just said one day you looked at something well, why don't we try this how, when you come up with a new idea how, how do you go about approaching it and, and implementing it into your practice yeah i mean uh, i don't i don't know i don't know really the answer to that unless i just kind of think out loud i think you see a patient and what kind of problems they're having and what they're experiencing you kind of break it down and what could work to make that problem go away 
Uh, so it's a little bit of problem solving. And a lot of times it's not traditional. It's not in uh, textbooks or whatever. It's a little bit of makeshift. Uh, so you have to be a little bit innovative and you try it. And obviously you proceed with caution because you're working with patients, but you try to innovate. And as it seems to work, you try it with more. And then all of a sudden it becomes mainstream. Like now, you know, perturbation training, you know, in my opinion, if you don't do that with an ACL patient, I mean, you're really missing out on an important component. But that wasn't the case in, you know, 1999, for instance. It's interesting. Almost sounds like a. Um one of the reasons why a doctor back in the day who was kind of pushing the envelope might have chosen someone like yourself also pushing the envelope. And can you explain exactly what perturbations are? I know you kind of mentioned that briefly as far as the stability stuff, but what exactly does that mean? Yeah, perturbation is a a rehabilitation term, if you will, uh, and it basically means a postural disturbance. So a classic example that would be a person is on a trail running or maybe hiking and they step in a little bit of a hole or uh, step on a tree branch and they kind of almost turn their ankle or their knee, they've been perturbated. They had a postural disturbance. And the difference between getting injured or not is you're able to get out of that that almost position, like turning your ankle. We've all done it. Step on a curve or step on a twig or step on somebody else's foot in sports. And so what we tried to do in, in rehab is reproduce that perturbation. So we do it with rocker boards and unstable surfaces, and you stand on it at first, and you just, it's almost like surfing. I would imagine surfers, if I were in California, I'd be testing surfers as far as perturbation. I would imagine they probably have the best neuromuscular skill for perturbation for lower extremity on the planet. Uh, probably maybe followed by skiers, but surfers for sure. So we put you on these rocker boards that tip and move and stuff like that. And we actually even make it harder on you by shaking it and tapping it to throw it off. And we actually even push you and so forth to make it even more difficult. And then we'll throw a ball to you to take your mind off your knee. And then we may even block your vision a little bit intermittently so it even trains your central nervous system even more. So we just keep adding different levels of elements to make it more and more difficult. Because one of the things that happens in some patients as well as far as this perturbation concept is, you can develop neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity after an injury simply means that your central nervous system has adapted in an ill-advised or a non-proficient way of stabilizing or activating muscle. The classic would be the ACL patient who, who loses muscle and they can't contract. They lose the ability. Their, their nervous system, their central nervous system has almost shut down. It's a protective mechanism. And some people believe that's one of the things that's happening even with a control issue like with Parkinson's patients and so forth. So what we try to do is, and again, there's some research in this area to document that that's happening, is with some of this perturbation neuromuscular training, we're training your central nervous system, your cerebellum, your motor cortex, and we're trying to override this injury protective mechanism that's going through uh, uh, going through your process of that individual coming back. And some people seem to have a bigger effect than others. Some people get hurt and they don't even seem like they got hurt. You've, you've seen it, you know, on the mm-hmm. sidelines. They don't even accept that they got hurt. Others, you know, can't do anything. Their leg is limp and, or their shoulder and they're just incapacitated. They're debilitated by it. Yeah. I think it's a, a really fascinating way to really use a comprehensive sort of model to treat 
really a very specific sort of injury. And, you know, I think it makes sense because when you think about it, an ACL tear is not just, you know, having its effect at the knee. Um, there's a whole kinetic chain, as you've mentioned several times before, you know, in listening to you. And I think that when you think about it, the idea that, you know, the kinetic chain is probably obviously controlled by the, the central nervous system. And so when you bring that all into place, that really, to me, makes a lot of sense. Um, and so I, I've always loved seeing those videos that you have of uh, a lot of your patients in there, uh, mostly because it's just interesting to see them almost fall over each time. Yeah. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. And they're on the edge. Right. You know, and we want them on the edge. But we are also, like you mentioned before, I think was a perfect comment by you, is, you know, you want to challenge them, you want to be aggressive, but you're really not aggressive. You're cautiously aggressive. The classic is, you know, again, the ACL patient and the female. And we all know that the female athlete, especially in high school and even before high school in eighth grade, is very high, high risk of ACL injuries. And it's just not their knee, it's their core and where their trunk is and their body position. And they haven't quite, in some cases, gotten the coordination. And I think that's a big reason why they have ACL injuries at a higher rate than males, you know, eight to 12 times higher, is because they're not controlling their hips, they're not controlling the core of their body, their knee goes into a valgus, valgus collapse, and they tear. And it's a little bit of a different mechanism than you see with the high school males, you know, and certainly at a lower lower rate or, or a lower incidence. Right. I think all that is is you know makes so much sense, and it's it's very interesting to see that. Um, and as as there are, these athletes are kind of coming through that recovery, you know, you've mentioned to me before that those are certain things that you really try to focus on and work on in that rehab phase, whether it's with an ACL or something else. You know, in your experience, what has been some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen athletes at the pro level, at the basic level? You know, make and trying to, to go through rehab where you, you, you saw it coming and you knew they weren't going to listen to you. Like, what is it? What are some of the biggest mistakes that you think you can make? Well, I think I think there's a lot, unfortunately, <laughs> and I, you know, I'm, I'm sure we've made them too, and we hopefully we're all learning by our mistakes. But I think some of them is sometimes, you know, kinesiophobia. I don't know what the opposite of that is, what the right term is, but you have some people who don't have it at all. Yeah. So they have no fear of re-injury, and they're out of control, and they. You know, I almost call it the Tarzan factor, that they think they can just swing from vine to vine, and um, they're invincible. Yeah. And I like that to a degree, but I don't like that early in the rehab. Uh, it's, you know, you have to temper it, and your whole time you're telling them, you're pulling back the reins, where the patient next to them, you're telling them you're fine, walk without your brace. You know, the Tarzan person, you're saying, walk with your brace, slow down, you're doing too much, your graph is weak, or it's not healed yet, and all this. It's so much uh, adjusting along the rehab process. So I think, you know, reading the patient to tell them either speed up or slow down is a big one. And also, we're you know, we're in an era of now of social media, which is fantastic for ch- uh, sharing information and knowledge and experiences. But there's, you know, like everything that's good, there's a negative aspect to it. So, you know, I had the same injury, and I did this, and I got better. Well, they probably didn't have the same injury. <laughs> You're not the same person. And sometimes we have patients who listen to their friend in another state, and they do ill-advised things. And sometimes patients, especially athletes, think more is better or different is better, and they're always looking for the edge. And sometimes we have to reel them in and say, that stuff is good, but it's not good right now. You know, you can do that in a conditioning manner, but you can't do it right now. You're, you're just not ready. And, you know, it's not good enough sometimes, well, most of the time, for me at least, to say you're not ready for it. You have to explain it so they buy into the concept. 
So I think you know everybody today is a lot smarter than they were before because of technology. You can Google something, you can search engine things, and find out what's going on with your problem. And 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 it challenges us as healthcare professionals. It definitely does to the right degree. Social media, like I said, is is, is fantastic because it provides a, a wealth of information. But um, I think that. It's up to us, really, to make sure that that application of information is is appropriate. Absolutely, absolutely. And sometimes it's good information, and sometimes it's a little misplaced. Yeah, I'm going to pivot a little bit here. We kind of went down a road, which I'm happy we went down, but I want to kind of come back to you know this idea that um, you know with, with you and Dr. Andrews, at some point, I'm sure that you noticed that you went from seeing a few professional athletes to starting to see all of them. Do you remember when that was? Yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, pretty distinctly. Um, I don't know what year that was, but I guess somebody can look it up real fast. Thank God for the internet again. But it was really, you know, in my mind, and I don't know what Dr. Andrews would say, I think he would agree, it was the Bo Jackson injury. So Bo was playing for the Oakland Raiders at the time and unfortunately dislocated his hip um, and had a you know, really devastating injury. And that happened, of course, on a Sunday uh, playing in the NFL. And, uh, you know, at the time he was playing baseball and football, an amazing athlete and and all that. And because he had gotten injured and knew Dr. Andrews and knew Dr. Andrews' reputation, he basically came to Birmingham to be evaluated all the way from California. And so when he came in, there was instant media attention. Dr. Andrews warned me, but I didn't really realize what that was going to be. Uh, so there's a lot of people here and a lot of press conferences, and I had not been quite exposed to that before. As a result of that, other athletes just – because of scheduling in about the same time, like a Jack Nicholas and people like that, who, who uh, Mr. Nicholas was at, you know, the peak of his game just about in the golf world, and he had had some hip injuries as well, ironically, or both hips. So there was press with that too, and that I think just catapulted. And certainly, Dr. Andrews had treated Bo before at Auburn and Jack Nicholas at the Houston Clinic and before and had that reputation. So it wasn't like it just magically happened. It was something that he was fostering and facilitating through the years. It just kind of all came together at the same time. And then after that, instead of seeing a couple pro athletes a week or every couple of days, it was more like 10, 12. 20 a day and you have to realize this is Birmingham Alabama uh, where we're not in LA or New York or Chicago there's not a pro team here so these people are all flying in and they're all you know staying and having surgery and it just started to really mushroom into a you know a great experience it's fantastic I think that's an, an incredible sort of jumping point and obviously that was a very high profile uh, sort of injury and if any any one of you or, or you I'm sure have watched the ESPN 30 for 30 it's a very fascinating thing and to put it in perspective to dislocate a native hip meaning not a hip that is a hip replacement but a normal hip is incredibly difficult to do it typically requires a, a motor vehicle accident um, we do see it from time to time in football as, as the you know the Bo Jackson uh, is, is uh, clearly evidence of that but you know that is one of those where you can see the film and nobody had any idea what was going on. Bo actually comes off the field, I think, in the video and says, my hip popped out. And people are just like, no, it didn't. Well, yeah, it actually did. But people didn't realize that that was even possible um, back then. But um, well, he even went to, just as a side, he even went to dinner that night with his family. And so, you know, being just an amazing athlete, but also tough as nails, uh, probably more than nails, titanium, whatever the strongest <laughs> element, kryptonite, whatever the strongest material is in the world. So he's sitting at dinner, and his hip started to seize up, so to speak, because of it, so spasm, and he couldn't get up. 
and that's when he knew he was in trouble um and that's when they basically had to help him out yeah that's so interesting obviously that started this cascade as you mentioned you coming from chicago as you mentioned didn't really have uh, that experience until you got down here was that at that point obviously with having all that attention from a, an outside perspective did that put a lot of pressure on you as far as the rehab aspect of, of treating not only Bo but uh, all these other athletes coming in i think i was just so busy i couldn't feel the pressure <laughs> obviously you're dealing with bo jackson and you know you're trying to get his hip right and get him back but you know because of the leadership and whatnot I don't think I ever really felt that much to be quite direct. I think we knew that um, when I say we, I'm, I'm talking the whole team uh, had a feeling we were doing what was right, uh, and we researched it. It wasn't like we just did what we thought, but we communicated with other people who had experience somewhat with that type of problem, and certainly people came to us, <laughs> people from every type of discipline and every type of device in the medical world and medicine to fix that hip came forth volunteering their information and their products but i had a sense of confidence and directness and and just feeling good about what we were doing and do you think treating athletes of of that caliber influenced your ability to treat all patients in any specific way meaning because you are expected to provide obviously flawless care to someone whose whole uh, careers is really predicated upon the idea that they have to be at 100% from a functional level. Do you think that influenced your ability to, you know, continue to treat patients in the future? Yeah, I think so. You know, obviously working shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow with just super physicians who are cutting edge as far as their knowledge base, not only in surgery, but really rehab and healing and what needs to happen. You know what I mean? There's a sense of direct direction that they give you, either nonverbal or verbal, I think it gives you confidence. And when you have confidence, certainly patients feel that confidence. And, you know, sometimes the belief in the cure is stronger than the cure to the patient. So I think that goes a long way. So I think early on, especially like I say, working next to Dr. Andrews and just his level of knowledge and his own confidence level, certainly if you didn't pick up on that, you were you were numb. Yeah. So as we mentioned at the very beginning of this and, and recently, you've clearly treated a whole a variety of, of not only Dr. Andrews patients, but other, other patients who have flown in uh, since Dr. Andrews has moved down to Pensacola. But who would you say is one of your favorites? And I don't need you to you know, tell us the, you know, the, the parent answer as you're all my favorites, but who's been one of your, your most entertaining or fun athletes to work with uh, in one of these experiences? Well, I am going to give you that answer. So, yeah, there's like so many of them. It's a super hard question. Man, I mean, just it's more you have to go by year. But, you know, a lot of them still 10 years later, 15 years later, they're retired. We still keep in touch. We go to dinners and stuff like that. So you clearly have developed a very strong relationship with a lot of these, all these yeah, players. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so. Um, I, I, speaking of which, I thought it was incredibly cool to see there's a picture i think you posted on instagram of the football that you had from drew Brees. can you tell us a little bit about um, what your experience was like with him yeah you know drew's been great uh one as a patient he's you know just an unbelievable athlete and his will to to get well uh coming back from you know everybody hears the story you know it's a career-ending injury and sometimes it's overstated but his was a career-threatening injury uh to say the least i mean you know, it was probably no one probably thought he was going to come back from that that injury to his shoulder that he sustained in San Diego. But for him to come back and then set records, uh, not only personal but team records, you know, as far as winning a Super Bowl, 
you know, is is fantastic. And obviously, you know, I'd like to say he's one of your favorites because he's so successful. But there's guys that, you know, are my favorites as well that, you know, haven't reached that level. But, yeah, we've got a couple footballs uh, in my office from Drew. You know, Super Bowl one that was, you know, special to say the least, uh, team ball. Uh, but a couple balls from um, standpoint of him uh, passing records, total yards, touchdowns, stuff like that. So I've got a, a couple of footballs from him. I've been very fortunate yeah. uh, to get – get footballs from drew obviously you know going through the type of surgery that he went through which you know again is, is kind of highlighted in the documentary that uh they did of him what was would you say was the most difficult part that he had coming through that that injury in that rehab because obviously an injury of that degree to the throwing shoulder uh is something that again like you said you don't expect people to come back from what was the most difficult part for him coming through that the early phase was tough the precautions you know, he wanted to push forward. He's a pretty aggressive guy. He never really listened to the milestones very well. I think, uh, you know, he heard what he wanted to hear. Uh, you know, the classic is, you know, he wasn't supposed to play in an exhibition game, preseason game, until the last game that was an agreement. He played in the first one. So he broke our agreement. Uh, and that's an agreement from Dr. Andrews as well. But it's always was like that with him. And I think that was the drive to succeed was – you know, he's a super high competitive guy. Yeah. Um, but early on, you know, pulling back on the reins, but, you know, early on, I mean, his, you know, his shoulder wasn't very good. He couldn't do very much. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there was a major fear. I'm not sure he would say that today, but if he had a quiet moment, I'm sure he would say that, you know, <laughs> not able to move your arm, you know, and, and not be able to feed yourself for a couple of weeks. I mean, he had a big, big injury, yeah. big, big. Yeah, and I think that goes to really to, uh, to the credit of, of Dr. Andrews and, uh, and you and the team that took care of them because, um, you know, from what I recall from that documentary and hearing just um, from the team of, of guys who treated him here that there are other, other places that said, yeah, you're done. Uh, and, you know, here Dr. Andrews said, no, we can, we can get you. We'll get you fixed up. Yeah, it, it, you know, and, and some of that you have to reassure them. But, you know, in the back of your mind, are you saying what's accurate or are you just trying to motivate? You know, for me, I, I actually never had a doubt. I mean, and I think you have to be that way. Um, I think you have to approach it in a realistic manner. But if you have doubt, they have doubt. They can sense that doubt. So, you know, my money was on him that he was going to make it back. I didn't, I didn't know he was going to be at that level, to be quite direct, uh, the records that he set. And as long as he'd been playing, I mean, this has been going on for. <laughs> A lot of years, for God's sake. Who, who would have thought even out of college he'd still be playing quarterback? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that um, that's why, what I, you know, as, as, a, as a surgeon involved in this, and obviously you have the same experience of, of being able to see players and athletes and even non-athletes when they are able to get back to that point to do the things they want to do, I think, is a, is a, is a very rewarding sort of experience. And I'm very obviously early in my career, but I can't even imagine what it was, would have been like for you to see that and to see him pass that. It must have been a very kind of emotional sort of experience to say, wow, this is, I hope for this, but I didn't expect it to this degree. Yeah, it's great. I mean, that's what we, I think what we work for in sports medicine. It's also great to see a high school kid, yeah. you know, come back from a dislocated knee or, you know, a bad shoulder injury or recreational golfer making it back and sends you a note. So, it, you know, it transcends every level. We just happen to see the pros on tv and you know you can reflect on it a lot better and you know the public can see it but you know there's a lot of behind the scenes stories as well yeah. making it back to work or you know their life their yeah. life activities 
Uh, are there any other athletes that, that come to mind that you have a good story about? Uh, something funny, uh, a, a gag, a joke, something else, anything of that, that regard? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of you know some of my my favorite athletes are you know like you as mentioning some of the ones that came back from big stuff, you know, big injuries and so forth. You know, like Jerry Pate, the pro golfer, for instance. Probably his career was derailed a lot, unfortunately, by shoulder injuries, and he had been operated on by pretty much every sports medicine doctor coast to coast from New York to LA, Birmingham, Chicago. And I forget how many shoulder surgeries between the two that he had, probably something like eight or nine. So a lot, you know, a lot for anybody, let alone a pro golfer trying to play at a professional uh, level. And he was pretty much ready to hang it up and, you know, decided to pretty much move to Birmingham and rehab and kind of recommit himself to his fitness level and his shoulders and so forth. And his first, I think it was the first tournament back. It makes a heck of a story, though. Uh, it might have been second or third, but it was really early with the number of tournaments. He wound up winning in a tournament in Hawaii, uh, first champion's uh, trophy that he got, which I still have in my office. So that's, you know, super gratifying, to say the least, when somebody, you know, hadn't won a tournament for years or an event, pretty much hanging it up, so to speak, you know, be able to come back at that level. You know, as far as funny jokes or, or pranks, you know, a lot of times athletes, they're not very playful in the beginning, you know, when they're hurt <laughs> for the most part. But as they get better and they see kind of the light is is coming, you know, and, and you're going to make it back, that's when they get their personality back. And most athletes are pretty fun-loving individuals and outgoing and so forth. So, you know, not to dwell on the one person, but Breeze, he's a practical joker, and he thinks he's a funny guy. And sometimes he is, sometimes he's not. But uh, that remains to be seen on who he's pranking. But we were going out to lunch one day, which you have to understand, like his rehab, he would come in in the morning, and he'd literally be in rehab for about three and a half, four hours. Then we'd break for lunch, many times go together, and then come back and rehab two, three hours in the afternoon. So he's literally rehabbing about six, seven, eight hours a day. And a lot of times people go, well, that's impossible. Not really. I mean, you're doing so many different things, and he's doing conditioning and legs and shoulder, and we're working on range and doing things intermittently. You know, the day went by fast. Actually, I mean, sometimes we wish we had more time. You know, a couple of times we talked about doing stuff at night, seriously, after dinner, which is really bizarre um, I mean you have to have some recovery so we went to lunch at a local place here in Birmingham we were pulling into the parking deck and uh, at the time I had a very small sports car and it was two-seater and a guy almost hit my front front of the car and I, I just kind of put my hands up like palms up like what are you doing he went down this alley really fast and Drew was actually talking to coach Peyton about possibly becoming a saint at the time New Orleans Saint player and this guy like whips around the parking lot and pretends like he's going to rear end me. Rams the the uh, not rams but uh, revs up the engine and all this. And I'm like, wow, I, I don't know what's going on here. I didn't think it was a big deal. I just kind of went like this. So I go to get out of the car and and Drew goes, Coach, I got to call you back. I think we're going to get in a fight. And um, so we both get out of the car and I'm like, I'm still like bewildered by this whole event that's going on because I didn't think it was anything big. I guess I'm used to Chicago. <laughs> anyway, so I walk toward the guy. I go, what's up? And the guy says, you know, you almost hit me and all this. And I'm, 
And so I'm like, no, I think you almost hit me, but forget it, you know, good luck, see you later, bye-bye, and it kind of got diffused. So fast forward, we ate lunch, we go back in the clinic, and I'm treating patients, and you know, I'm treating multiple patients with Breeze, and he slips away to a phone, uh, one of our house, uh, you know, clinic phones. And I didn't know it was him, but I hear on the intercom, Kevin Wilk, uh, Sergeant McGillicuddy or something like that on line one. And, and I'm ignoring it, and I tell the girls up front, I can't pick up the phone. And this keeps happening. She comes back and says, he's insisting on it. They have a warrant for your arrest. <laughs> and I, I said, so my God. So I run to the phone. I'm like, I've never been arrested in my life, and let alone a warrant. I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? Parking tickets? Honestly, I thought it was parking tickets. But anyway... <laughs> from Chicago. But anyway, uh, pick up the phone, and in a funny voice, this guy says, there was an incident in a parking lot, and you threatened this guy, and he has a warrant out for your arrest, and we need you to come in and give us your story. And I said, well, I can't. I'm busy in the clinic. I come in after work. You have to come in now. And I said, I'm busy. I have a lot of patients here. I can't right now. And he goes, well, if you don't come in, we're going to come and arrest you. And I was ready to say, well, you're going to have to come and arrest me. So I figured I'd throw some names out, right? I said, well, I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of pro athletes here right now. And uh, he goes, well, like who? And I said, well, well, Drew Brees. He was he was there when this thing ha- happened. He goes, who's Drew Brees? And I said, I said, are you are you are, are you a football fan? He goes, yeah, I love football. And I said, well, he's quarterback from the San Diego Chargers, and he had surgery here. And I never heard of him. <laughs> I, I, I said, well, well, he's here, but he's my witness that nothing happened in this parking lot. He goes, you're going to have to come in. I said, I'm, I'm, I can't come in. I, I, I'm just too busy. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. All of a sudden, I hear laughter and people carrying on. Not only was he on the phone in the office that I couldn't see, but the staff that I work with, <laughs> he pulled around so it was a, a prank that's, with all of them. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I still owe him for that one. Yeah. I told him to this day. I, I guess that was probably like oh six oh seven. You know, it was that yeah. that year? Uh, I'm still paybacks are. Who's Drew Brees? Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, and he went on with it uh, brilliantly as well. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, a little um, bit of long story. I apologize. But. No, that's perfect. Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. I also heard um, not only uh, do you treat athletes, but um, there's a, there's an entertainment exposure as well. And, and I guess Willie Nelson is is, is a person you treated before. Um, and I heard that you know you were able to enjoy some time on a bus with him. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, Willie's manager is a patient of mine. He's a triathlete, Mark Rothbaum. Mm-hmm. He's done the Ironman yeah. several times, and one of his clients is Willie Nelson for a lot of years. So Willie was having some some shoulder and some other problems, and and so we started treating him and, and seeing him. And so when Willie would have a bad flare up with his shoulders or his hips or whatever, sometimes I would go to where he's at. And so he happened to be in New York on the um, Letterman show and the view or something like that. I, I don't know. So you remember uh, the particulars, but some of these talk shows, but mm-hmm. was doing a couple concerts at night. So Mark said, why don't you come up and treat him? And, you know, you can stay by Willie in the same place and blah, blah, blah. So I said, yeah, you know, this sounds, you know, good, good thing. It was around Christmas time and all that, New York and, and so forth. So we went up there and uh, started treating him. And Willie's bus is parked right outside Letterman's studio at Rockefeller Center. They put it right on the street. It's unbelievable, <laughs> like double parked. And so, uh, and, you know, a couple times at Farm Aid, we treated Willie as well, which yeah. is he's a big sponsor of Farm Aid and he's yeah. a big charitable guy, you know, for farmers and things of that nature. So, anyway, I'm on the bus in at you know New York and Letterman and 
you know, Willie has some habits, so to speak, you know, before he goes on and this and that, and the bus is kind of smoke-filled. And, uh, and I, I don't know if that was really the farm-made one or New York. I'll just clarify with that. But anyway, I'm sitting there, and I kind of notice I'm kind of getting hungrier and hungrier by the second. <laughs> and uh, my eyes are kind of burning a little bit. And, uh, you know, I get off the bus, and I'm you know a little bit lethargic, more so than normal. You know, I want to take a nap, but I have an urge for Twinkies. I don't know why. And... Uh, and uh, so that's happened a few times yeah. like that, but uh, he's a great patient, yeah. you know, great guy. Must be the country music. Must be the country music for yeah. sure, and uh, just the fabulous guy to work that's with. That's amazing, and, and works hard. I might add, you yeah. know, in his rehab, uh, yeah. he's a very dedicated individual, so that he can perform at the level. And and being as, you know, age that he is to go out there and perform, yeah. I mean, that speaks to not only his physical condition, but his mental aspect. I mean, he's a very dedicated individual. Yeah. Comes across real laid back, but he's a very dedicated yeah. individual. Oh man, that's uh, that's some funny stuff. Uh, obviously, Willie Nelson, like you said, has uh, been very dedicated as far as therapy, and, and I think longevity is a very interesting sort of uh, aspect of that. I mean, he's had such a long career, and he's sounds like he's taking very good care of himself, and I think um, that has become a little bit more of a focus now. I mean, you hear guys like Tom Brady, specific diets. You hear you know guys like LeBron James, where he's got Mike Mencius, I believe is the name, who is with him 24-7, and their main focus as soon as he's done playing a game is recovery, recovery, recovery. Um, that's becoming bigger and bigger. What have you seen? Have you started to see treatment more athletes in that regard in terms of a preventative and recovery not just for injury but just for kind of overall health yeah absolutely i think i think that's transcending every level even even the high school kids are getting it now uh, i don't know if they're getting it as much as they should you know with sports specialization and maybe pitching too much or playing one sport at a time i wish maybe they would get it a little bit more but they realize the importance of recovery and stretching soft tissue nutrition diet you know the longevity factor but yeah uh, to their credit it is a tom brady and a lebron james and a, and a drew Brees. drew Brees was doing it. he has a his own conditioning person that is his guy that works with him year round and his diet even when he injured his shoulders diet was very particular so i think that all factors into an injury to your recovery is that you, you're treating throughout you know, nowadays we do a lot more soft tissue. We do a lot more recovery. Uh, you know, there's hyperbaric chambers. There's, um, you know, there's different types of compression devices without mm. naming names where it helps in your recovery and optimal healing. Uh, all those things come into play. And, you know, these, these athletes are all looking for the edge, so yeah. to speak. Um, not only the edge on the field or on the court, but also the edge, how am I going to be ready for the next start? Right. And some of the best ones, you know, I think do it the best. I mean, I don't think it's coincidental that Tom Brady does what he does. I mean, he's probably got phenomenal genetics uh, and, and a very gifted athlete, but he's done the things necessary to preserve that. You know, I think of like a John Smoltz, who when uh, uh, John was coming back from his Tommy John surgery of his elbow, um, and at the time it wasn't mainstream, but he would travel with the Braves with a hyperbaric chamber and would go into it, you know, between starts because he firmly believed that helped him in his recovery, helped him with his elbow. And he was, I mean, m you know, very, very diligent with his exercises. I mean, he was religious to, you know, and very similar to these other individuals. I think if people, more people started to realize that, 
that there's a certain personality trait as well with these individuals that make them that way. It's not by accident mm-hmm. that somebody's playing when they're 40 years old. Right. And I think that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that is starting to become a growing trend is to see this, that um, the really the focus on uh, not only just you know treating injuries after they happen, as well as preventing them, but is kind of maintaining. It's almost like if you have a car, you know, if it's a Ferrari and, you know, you're, you know, the LeBron James of the basketball world, you're really making sure that all of the parts are working correctly. Yeah, and I think to that point, uh, Mike, and you bring up a great point, is, uh, you know, I hope that some of the listeners out there, you know, they might have kids and so forth, you know, the disadvantages of some of this specialization. You know, you're a baseball pitcher and all you do is pitch all year round and more is better kind of philosophy. We've learned the hard way that the more you do in one sport, the more likely you are to be injured, whether that's basketball, baseball, or any sport, gymnastics, any sport, track and field. So, you know, we're big advocates here, and I know you've, I've seen you talk to patients, and here you talk to patients that, you know, if you're playing a sport, it'd be really good for you to take some time off play another sport. You're a baseball player, play soccer, play basketball, be a better athlete. Don't be a better pitcher. You got to give your arm a break. You got to give it a rest. And, you know, some interesting studies are finally coming out to document. We know it in the medical profession. We've known it for a long time, but finally these studies are starting to come out and hopefully coaches and parents will take that to heart uh, and say, okay, my son or daughter is a really good basketball player, but they're not going to play basketball 12 months out of the year. They're going to do something for a month or two. I think that's a really good point. And um, I want to emphasize that because um, I'm very early in my career, but I've clearly learned that, you know, being a a product of the Andrews, uh, you know, family, uh, not only going through the fellowship, but just learning from, you know, Dr. Andrews, the doctors that he has trained uh, and working with ASMI as well as yourself. That has been one of the main points that they have really emphasized for youth athletics. And, and you are one of the top physical therapists and rehab specialists in the country. Can you please reemphasize that in terms of what, what it means to not specialize in sports and to provide kids who are still growing with open growth plates some time off? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't know how else to say it, maybe except with examples. For instance, sometimes young athletes follow the role model, so to speak, which is another athlete. But Bo Jackson didn't play just football. Growing up in high school, he played four sports, actually. People don't even realize. He ran track occasionally. So he was a four-sport athlete. John Smoltz, I mentioned him. He played basketball and baseball growing up. He's a great golfer, by the way. I don't want to play him for money. Uh, (laughs) But he had an opportunity to play college basketball. Tom Glavin, another fantastic pitcher with the Braves, hockey player, could have went to college playing, playing hockey. You know, the list goes on and on. Michael Jordan, baseball player. And liked it so much that he even had aspirations and, and followed that in professional where he stepped away from basketball just to fulfill his dream. So, you know, I think, you know, these examples are great. And sometimes people go, well, that's them. That's not me. I need to play all year round. But we see it time in and time out that sometimes when you step away and you come back, you're actually better. Um, and you're better because you can perform at a higher level. You give your body a rest. Anytime you do something repetitively over and over, you're going to get better at it, but the problem is you may break down. And the classic is the pitcher, whether it's a female or male. You know, and the adage that the softball pitcher can pitch all weekend long and all that, we don't believe in. 
that they they need to be on a pitch count, inning count as well, just like the males or just like the boys. Uh, but you need to play another position and take two, three months off at the end of the year and don't throw hard. Uh, you know, the basketball players. There's a couple nice studies that show NBA players that only played one sport in high school have a higher injury rate in the NBA, even in the NBA. And these are first-round picks. So this is the cream of the cream. So maybe, and, and it's tough. You know, you're really good and you want to play AAU basketball, summer leagues, uh, your school, you know, and, it, and the seasons come close together. You know, they overlap so much you almost can't take any time off. But the coaches need to realize that backing off a little bit, cross-training, doing something else has huge implications in their performance. And especially, as you mentioned, uh, Mike, is growth plates and young people. Open growth plates take time, especially if you get an apophysitis or irritation of it. That's not going to go away very quickly, and you can have long-term ramifications as a result of an injury, and you know it best uh, of anyone. Yeah, it's been interesting, um, you know, even my first year, I uh, had several patients in their teens who just pitching too much and, you know, ended up having fractures of their elbows um, just because it was uh, the body is not physiologically ready for that type of demand or that type of load on the elbow. Um, you know, and I think the stat this year for this NFL draft class, uh, or it might have been last year, I want to verify that, but I think 90% of the players drafted played multiple sports. Yeah. You know, so that just goes to show you that if you're an athlete, you're going to be an athlete. And eventually, when you need to focus on one sport, you will. But the athletes who get to the point where they're the elite of the elite, we're doing multiple athletics. We're doing multiple sports. I agree. And I, I and again, I think you know the pitcher is the classic example. If you're a better athlete, you're going to be a better pitcher. I firmly believe that. And I think right. most really good pitchers will tell you that, whether it's a Roger Clemens, a John Smoltz, a, um, you know, whoever your favorite pitcher happens to be at the top of the game. Clayton Kershaw, any of those will tell you that, that you'll be able to field your position better, you'll be able to recover you know, from the, the event itself of pitching. The other thing, too, is I think that feeds into these unfortunate youth injuries is athletes are bigger, stronger, faster now. Everything's happening more quickly. Velocity in professional baseball has gradually gone up every year over the last 10 years. You wonder where the ceiling's going to be. But you know the interesting thing is, Mike, that even though velocity has gone up over 10 years, the ones that have the most highest velocity, performance isn't going up. Performance is actually staying about the same and maybe even going down slightly. So we like this velocity game and doing training things to get you know, a higher fastball velocity, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a more proficient pitcher. Right. That's the... That's the paradigm, yeah. you know. That's the uh, that's the the crux. To this, right? And I, and I think you mentioned it is velocity in terms of being able to you know strike batters out. But if you don't have the control, uh, it, velocity doesn't really mean anything. And I think that you know you have these young young kids going to these camps and playing your ball year round and you know carrying around a, a radar gun, seeing how they can how much they can top it out that's not the most effective way to pitch as you said i mean velocity is helpful but you know when you're developing it's probably not the best thing for you yeah i mean listen to john smoltz when he's a commentary on the little league world series he he pitches periodically little messages that i think are brilliant where he says pitchers out there you know this guy's got great velocity but he's not getting him out location location change of speed that's how you get people out at this level in the low league world series if you just change velocity and you work someone they're going to be dumbfounded yeah. it's not overpowering everybody every batter that you see yeah 
I think that's definitely one of the hot topics of, of you know sports today, especially you sports. Um, another one I just kind of wanted to see, hear your opinion on was obviously the concussions. Um, uh, NFL is obviously the prime example of that, um, but we see concussions elsewhere. I mean, uh, people wouldn't think about it, but um, you know, high school and competitive cheerleading. I mean, we see a ton of concussions in those girls. What role do you think that you, as a, a therapist and rehab specialist, has in in the concussion world, if any? Yeah, I, I, we definitely do. I think we have a role, just like all aspects of the medical. Uh, field, so to speak, each discipline. Concussions are tough because, you know, e- each person responds a little bit differently to to a concussions or different degrees. Also, as they get subsequent repeated concussions, is a bigger problem, obviously, and so forth. And sometimes, you know, athletes aren't very truthful with their concussions. Sometimes they don't even know if they had a concussion. A lot of times, we see people and they call it different things. Oh, I got dinged. You know, I, you know, kind of got a little lightheaded. You know, what, is, what does that mean? I got dinged. You know, I got lightheaded. I got rung. You know, I got my bell rung, so to speak. You're right. And, you know, we always think about the football player, but it's also the soccer player, you know, especially the young lady mm-hmm. or the young guy out there who's heading balls and practicing at a young age and playing in multiple leagues. You know, it's a big problem. You mentioned uh, competitive cheerleading which is an unbelievable athletic feat. These young ladies and guys, obviously guys are involved in it as well. I mean, they're very athletic, and they do stunts that are, you know, breathtaking, but also scary as heck if you ever sat through them. And so, you know, we've covered that, and my daughter did that stuff, and she was a flyer, and I would just sit there and hold my breath and say a prayer, and thank God every time she landed, you know, safely. But, you know, when they do get a concussion, I think, you know, we've struggled with the management of them. You know, do we put them in a dark room and quiet the brain, or now do we give some stimulus? And, you know, the gauntlet seems to be switching back and forth. I was at a meeting where some of the people, the neuroscientists from uh, Harvard were speaking. It was a BU-Harvard meeting. And they were saying, well, no, I mean, let them go to class. Let them have some stimulus, but not too much. You know, so it's hard to get this magic equation. Yeah, what is that number, right? What is that number, exactly. And so for me, from a physical standpoint, once they're cleared, and I rely on the medical team, the physician, evaluate them to say that they can start doing physical activities, we slowly start to filter in neuromuscular type exercises, training the brain, so to speak. And that's a cliche that's used a lot. That goes back to that neuroplasticity, Mm -hmm. training the brain. So is that weightlifting activities? Well, some of that just getting pressures up and things of that nature, blood pressure. But the second thing is, you know, we're trying to train your neuromuscular system so you can stabilize stabilize extremities, make sure you don't have any ill effects from the injury, such as vestibular. So it's a lot of vestibular rehab, if you will. So a lot of balance, neuromuscular yeah. perturbation stuff, yeah. like we talked about. So I the, think the, it has vest- a real big place. And the vestibular, you, uh, just for the, to clarify, is really more so the uh, the balance aspect of that. That's correct? right. Do you notice, uh, and, and as you've mentioned, a lot of the initial sort of um, treatment is really uh, modification of, of stimuli, uh, reducing uh, overstimuli, whether it's you know phones or you know computers, uh, too much noise, uh, video games, video games, etc. <laughs> um, once they've kind of cleared beyond that obviously you know there's not much to do from a physical standpoint and they can until they can get past that um, do you notice once they are you know quote unquote cleared uh, to return to activities do you notice a difference between some uh, an athlete who has a concussion uh, versus someone who's coming back from a, a rehab from a, an actual surgical injury meaning um, do you notice that their abilities to balance are 
slowed and they gradually regain that or is it pretty much normal and they're just working on getting back to you know functional level of a play yeah i think that has a lot of variability to it unfortunately and i know i don't understand it well and i don't think we understand it well as a profession i have physician friends of mine that they have daughters bo- both cases i fresh in my mind are daughters who played college soccer at pretty big programs and very good athletes and sustain repeated concussions and they struggle with it for over a year uh, which I don't necessarily see in individuals that are injured like an extremity for the most part right uh, so I think in some people the long-lasting effects may be greater and for me I you know I just wonder if it's not the repeated almost micro trauma, so to speak, because it's kind of ironic that most of the time when you hear about these long-standing ones, it's either in boxing or ultimate fighting or soccer. We have these repeated blows, repeated blows, right. uh, versus the football player that gets you know, dinged once maybe every four months or yeah. something like that, yeah. especially with new rules. And the new right. rules, I, I think, are obviously changing football for all the better. I mean, I couldn't couldn't agree with it more yeah but you know i worry about those young soccer players out there heading the ball and repeated and you know not only in practice but they <laughs> they go home and they do it because yeah. obviously especially the highly motivated ones they want to be proficient they you know they want to get good at it so what do they do they go in the backyard and they do it even more sort of like the pitcher that we talk about yeah you know you got an elbow problem you pitch in a game and you're not happy with it and dad takes you out back and you're going to throw some more. A lot of kids down here in warm climates, they have mounds in their backyard. Yeah. With radar guns. Perfect setup. Exactly. To kind of, I want to go back to, and talk a little bit about what we kind of briefly touched on as far as you know, rehab recovery, uh, you know, kind of longevity sort of uh, topic. From your standpoint, and whether you apply this in your daily life or whether you know you think it's more specialized for you know athletes who are you know still competing, uh, what would you say the top three recommendations for you know general um, you know, rehab or, or musculoskeletal health? Do you have you know three things that you, you you do on a daily basis or weekly basis that you think helps you know maintain good you know joint health or overall fitness or something to that extent? Yeah, I think you know, and that that's for all ages and all individuals. Sure. I think things that maintain good joint health is good flexibility and range and not excessive you know too much range but i think good flexibility good dynamic support to that joint whether it's your back you know that's the classic 80 percent of the population has back problems Mm -hmm. mostly due to core weakness and postural changes i think that's also what happens around at the shoulder a lot with cuffs you know you basically have bad posture and kind of wear out disuse so i think a certain level of dynamic stabilization and actually keep moving it stay active yeah disuse and attrition is a culprit for certain areas you know we all ambulate but a lot of us don't use our arms so resisted training more and more research is coming out that shows that resisted training and it can be light is very very good for you for a longevity living a healthy life we think of the cardiovascular and walking, but if you can couple a little bit of walking or exercise, whatever your cardiovascular level is, mm-hmm. obviously an athlete's going to be running, but for the general person, it may be just a walking program or cycling, but if you can factor in some weights, that goes a long way. And just simple exercises. You don't have to get you know, very aggressive with it, but something like that goes a long way. You couple that with proper nutrition and an active lifestyle, should be good. Yeah. Flexibility, mobility, core strength, 
and some resistive training. That's right. Um, I, I couldn't agree more, to be honest with you. And I think obviously you add the nutrition in there. Um, you know, I think nutrition is actually important. There's a lot of different things going around. There's some new research talking about carbs and, you know, being too much and all this stuff. And, and I think that you should you know, definitely do the due diligence to figure out what's best for you. But um, I, would, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the interesting things was, and I think I'm glad you mentioned mobility and flexibility. I'd listened to a previous uh, podcast on one of the uh, former U.S. Uh, national um, coaches for the men's gymnastic team. And one of his quotes was, if the best athletes in the world are stretching their asses off, why aren't you? And I love that because at the end of the day, some of, if you look at these gymnasts, you know, it's like the cheerleaders you mentioned, their level of athleticism is almost probably at the top uh, of really any athlete in terms of their their body control, their physique, um, their ability to jump, cut, rotate, pivot, and do some of these most amazing things. And just pound for pound strength is incredible. Um, but one of their main focus was always stretching mm-hmm. and maintaining mobility and flexibility. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And to your point, which I think is a spot on perfect point is body awareness. One of the things that happens is as we age, and I had a patient in just the other day who, again, is a triathlete, uh, up in age though, and he's commenting to me that he can't quite do some of the balance things. And my point to him was, as we age, your balance and your vestibular system gets compromised. So for the listeners out there that are kind of getting up in age, and whatever that means to you, it may be 45, 50, it may be 70, whatever your your age is that you're listening, I can't tell you how important it is to do body awareness training, balance training, which brings in core. Standing on a single leg, standing on foam pad. If you're at the beach, standing on your one leg and uh, in the sand. And so what does that mean? Yoga, uh, Pilates. And again, not to throw out buzz terms, but those are things that bring in body awareness, core stabilization. And they're also fun to do as well. So those are great exercise vehicles for the recreational person to do. And the irony of that is more and more teams, by the way, you know, one of my more favorable teams I like, uh, just happens to have won a World Series the year they put a Pilates studio in, the Chicago Cubs, ironically, because one of their pitchers was a big advocate of uh, Pilates and uh, yoga. And so I, I think, you know, and again, many teams have done that for a lot of years, L.A. Dodgers and Tampa Bay Rays, and, you know, I can make a whole list, and I don't mean to exclude anyone because, you know, I don't mean to, but more and more baseball teams realize that these pitchers, it's all about core stabilization because you want to prevent back problems. You know, you want to prevent this person from being injured, but you're trying to enhance performance at the same time. Yeah, I think that those are things, that, especially like the, the idea of yoga and Pilates, several years ago didn't really appeal to the quote-unquote macho sports, you know, some of the football and the, the, the male-dominated sports. And it's interesting because you see a lot of uh, it's totally changed. If I had a, a young high school athlete in my family, which I don't have right now, I tell you, they would be doing Pilates and yoga. Yeah. Or some form of maybe we wouldn't call it yoga if it was no. a if he were a high school football sure. player, but I'd be doing yoga yeah. type movements, dynamic he, movement yeah, for football. Or exactly, something, you know, exactly, exactly, exactly. Just a few a few other questions. They kind of shift just a little bit in terms of. Um, I think that uh, I'm I'm very impressed by you and your ability to kind of balance uh, an incredibly busy schedule. Um, I, I think at one point I asked you how many weekends you were presenting, um, and you said 38, I believe, which still blows my mind. First of all, what drives you to not only be involved in research and, and, and go give those talks. But second part of that question is, how do you balance that with a very busy clinical practice research that you also are very active in and a family life? 
Yeah, it's not easy. Sometimes it's easier than others, but you know, it's a team approach. Again, I, you know, it sounds like cliche, but I'm fortunate. I work with really good people. I have a good team uh, that supports me. So when I'm gone, my patients don't suffer. That's probably the biggest concern. Is you go to a conference. A lot of times it's a Friday, so you leave on a Thursday. Uh, you know, those conferences are over the weekend, so it starts on Friday. So you know, what's happening with those people? are left behind so to speak and a lot of times they're out of town athletes you know in the past some of them actually used to travel with me which is always a, a great time <laughs> for a lot of reasons not like being on a course all day and then rehabbing at night and so it just kind of reminded me of some some individuals that we've made those trips before but uh at any rate so a team is really important and what's nice about going to these conferences you learn I don't go to a conference that I don't learn something, you know, every time. So you pick up different ideas and the networking and and just seeing how other people do things, you know. Uh, The way it's done in Switzerland is different than Birmingham, Alabama. So you pick up a tidbit here and there and you maybe you refine it to your patients because they're different in France than they are in Chicago a little bit as far as what they do from a fitness standpoint but you take you know a little bit of this a little bit of that it's almost like being a chef I think and the other fun part about you know the aspect of doing multiple things I think it prevents burnout so you know people say you've done this a long time you feel burnout never had it and I think the reason is if you do multiple things how can you ever get bored with it? You know what I mean? It's hard to get burned out when you really like it, for one. Um, and then two is you got so many irons in the fire, <laughs> you know, you can't really get burnt out. You, you can only get overwhelmed sometimes, and you just have to juggle it a little bit. But I, can, I think I learned from the master with Andrews, uh, Dr. Andrews, that is, that, I mean, he, he always went to a lot of conferences. <laughs> You know, always on the phone, always talking to an agent, talking to a player, a trainer, a PT. It's never really an idle moment. So I, I think there's a happy medium to that. You have to have some balance, obviously, and do other things. But I, I think, you know, burnout is a product of a lot of factors. But I think if you love what you do, you're not really working. And c- clearly, you know, one can tell that you really do love what you do. Um, I mean, it shows in not only my experience with you, you know, working with patients in clinic, but uh, just talking to you here today, too. On the heels of that, uh, obviously, you know, from the beginning of your career to, to now and working with, you know, someone like Dr. Andrews, the success you've had, what is it about what you do that you like that you're looking always for? the next thing to improve patient care, the next even an entrepreneurial idea, because I know you've been involved with some companies that are working to, you know, make rehab easier or augment rehab you know what is it that drives you to do that yeah i think just trying to get people better i mean it sounds <laughs> sounds kind of elementary just trying to help people um just trying to get people better take them back to the level that they were and many times higher it's that simple just what's the best way of doing it what's the the best treatment and i think the way you find that out is not only what you're doing but what other people are doing and research I'm a big believer of that. I, I think if you stay in a pigeonhole and you don't see what's out there, you stay in that pigeonhole. You always do what you always did, and you always get what you always got. So consequently, without change, you don't have progression yeah. or change. So uh, that just goes back to the research that we try to do here at Andrew Sports Medicine as well as ASMI, American Sports Medicine Institute. Um, I think the work that you know Dr. Fleisick, Dr. Andrews, Dugas and Kane, the whole team, yourself, uh, have shown with throwers, we've changed the rules uh, in baseball. So 
um, I think that speaks volumes as far as you know changing what people are doing yeah. for the better. Yeah. Obviously, you know, all this is not whether it's changing rules or you know adding a new technique or, or a new protocol. Uh, it's not without its sort of you know hiccups every now and then. Um, and I think that we you know we meaning uh, the, the medical community, the surgical community, the the doctors and uh, physicians, therapists, trainers who take care of athletes, uh, we're not without fault. And I think you know failures do happen, uh, but I think we learn from those. What would you say is a notable failure during your career that you think you learned the most from? Well, I think you learn more from your failures than your success. I remember a, a very good baseball pitcher. I'm trying to think how many years ago this would have been, probably about 12, 15, Cy Young, MVP. He wound up having three Tommy John surgeries on the same elbow. <laughs> Didn't quite make it back after the third. He struggled. Yeah. He made it back. You could say he made it back, sure. but he was never quite the same, and his career was cut short because of it. Now, a lot of that was due to his aggressiveness and just not being compliant and so forth, but um, I think the way UCL injuries are treated as a result of that has changed dramatically. And when I say UCL, ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow, the Tommy John procedure. But, um, you know, great guy would run through the wall. The problem is he's going to run through that wall too early uh, and do things too early than, than what, he, you know, what he should have mm-hmm. in retrospect. Um, you know, that's a failure. I don't think, you know, totally on us, although maybe we should have been more strict with him. You know, when he's not here, who knows what you're doing. Some of the articular cartilage things with bone bruises, we didn't quite understand them quite as much early on. You know, when bone bruises were first identified, you have an ACL injury and bone bruises, you know, was kind of downplayed. I remember physicians in particular at meetings, oh, the bone bruise doesn't mean much. And we've learned that that may be the precursor to articular cartilage, you know, localized lesions. We're all learning as we go, and as long as you're learning, you're growing. Uh, when you stop growing, you're, you know, <laughs> it's over. Yeah. You're overripe. You're, you're overripe, yes. <laughs> yeah, you're rotten. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> kind of on a different note, uh, surgeons have a different perspective, coaches have a different perspective, athletes have a different perspective in terms of, you know, after surgery getting back. Uh, and you and I have talked about this before in terms of, for example, return to play after an ACL. Surgeons can sit there and say, well, he cleared the biodex, let him go. What is your sort of thought? If you could educate surgeons or other other coaches, you know, taking care of players who've had an injury, what would you say that we could get better at? Well, uh, yeah, the return to play is is a hot topic right now, and it remains to be a hot topic. Um, and I, I think we all struggle with this. And I think the ultimate problem is, is really insurance, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is – a person has an ACL injury. And we're not talking pro athlete that has endless visits or you know trainers at their disposal seven days a week. But the the regular high school scholastic athlete, whatever level that is, if they're seeing a therapist, they're going to run out of visits somewhere around twelve weeks, fourteen weeks post op. That leaves a big void from three months to six, seven months when they're going to return to sport. That means they have to do something on their own. Some will, some won't. Some will do the wrong things. Some will have a trainer at their school. Some won't. Some will be, unfortunately, to their own devices based on how their knee feels. And then they see a physician, uh, orthopedic surgeon or primary care physician, whoever's going to check them to see if they're ready to go back at six or seven months. And most typically what happens is it's a clinical exam, it's a verbal communication, and it's a decision that the physician makes. Usually that decision is either yay progress on gradually or maybe you need to hold back a little bit but there's nothing in between at some centers i like to think here 
on a regular basis, we test you. And the idea of testing is that you meet criteria. And there's some fabulous research that's come out that says with an ACL, if you meet that criteria, you're reducing your re-injury rate by three to four times. So it's just common sense, just test. The problem is what tests do you do and do you have the equipment to do it and the availability of that equipment. So strength is one of them, like a Biodex isokinetic test, maybe a hop test, maybe some type of agility run has been shown very beneficial. Um, obviously the clinical exam that the physician does is paramount to this. That really is the precursor to the test. If you don't pass the clinical exam, there's no, te- there's no reason to test you, right? right? Yeah, I mean, you have a loosey-goosey knee or your graph failed, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could make a case. Maybe you test them. Maybe they can go without it. But I'm not in that camp necessarily. I wouldn't either. Yeah. And so uh, I think that, but also there's one other element that we haven't been able to test yet, and that's the psychological. And that's the kinesiophobia that you talked about, Dr. Ryan. And so there is a Tampa scale for kinesiophobia that's out there. Uh, it originated with back patients who hurt their back, and they were fearful of going back to work because they didn't want to hurt their back again, which makes perfect sense. So there's a, depending on which one you read, which version, it's 11 to 15 questions. And we've used that at knees and at the shoulders as well. So I think we're getting better at all this, testing every element, your strength, your neuromuscular control, the ability to move, how you feel about yourself. I think that all factors into the equation. For me, what I've always struggled with is what if you pass two or three of the tests? You don't pass the third test, or you pass two of the four. You know, Do you make it, or you hold back? You know what I mean? What test is more important? And so, you know, that's a struggle. I don't know if we've all worked this out yet in our – and everybody has their own opinion on this. I like for you to pass all the tests, um, or at least be close on all the tests. Uh, But there's another one that's the intangible. It's called rehab progression, appropriate rehab progression. That means you went through the steps, you haven't had problems, and there – it's – it's a feel. It's a feel it's, test, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's this person, then they're throwing, and their mechanics look good, and they're not saying it bothers them, and they're not holding back, and you can see that they're doing well. That's what you convey to the physician, and that's the beauty of having a, a trainer at your school or a trainer with the team to sit, communicate that. That's an intangible. That's not a black and white test. That's a, that's a feel, as you said, or a, a perception. Mm-hmm. And it's a perception that you read with one another. Um, and that goes a long way. Um, and I think that's what you get at you know, colleges and you get in the pro ranks. The problem is the person most susceptible is the high school kid or the recreational. That, yeah, it doesn't have that. Yeah. And so these schools that have trainers, I mean, I think are fantastic. But there's a lot of schools we deal with that don't have trainers. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think there's still a lot of, of – a uh, lot to be discovered with respect to defining an objective return to play for – not only just the elite athletes, which is probably going to be easier. I mean, the technology has developed at, at such a rate that we now have a lot more data, almost more data than we know what to do with in terms of, you know, baseline characteristics, which a lot of these athletes, not only in football, but basketball um, across the collegiate and, and NFL levels. What I find interesting is that what are we going to do with it? How, yeah. how do we determine, you know, which is important? And it's going to take some time. The, you know, the next step on this stuff, and, you know, it's probably 
you're probably going to cover it in the future is all the GPS and sensors right. yeah. that now braces are going to come out with sensors right. um, or sleeves and we can monitor the force that you're imparting on a joint. Right. GPS, how much are you running? How fast are you going? We'll get baseline on you and progress. And a lot of the pro teams and major colleges have that now. The yeah. problem is, you know, for the GPS stuff, you're talking six figures that have yeah. A system so right now it's cost prohibitive for for everyone but in my opinion that's the future I hope I yeah. see it I hope I I'm in this field long enough yeah. to see the progression of technology I, I really believe that's we're gonna have braces that we know what they're doing how many times they're doing it and if they're doing it wrong right. and we can monitor that so that helps us with this whole insurance capitated system but it also we can you know, through technology, send you exercises and so forth. It may require learning curves for all of us from a technology standpoint, but I firmly believe that's the future. Yeah, I do too. I mean, we've seen some preliminary data uh, from you know some of the schools we work with, and it just gives you a much better understanding because a lot of these athletes, especially at that level, their strength-wise and their ability to develop muscle, it excels beyond most normal people. And so they can pass a biodex at four months. But if you look at their objective data compared to their baseline it's not the same for eight and a half almost nine months yeah no that's so a great point i think it's gonna be interesting to see once we start to develop more data um to be able to compare to baseline really get an idea well, what is the sweet spot and the sweet spot for an alabama athlete or a, an, an nfl you know football player um, is going to be very different from a good high school football player a good soccer player at the high school level it's going to be entirely different and it's tough because you know we get pressure from from our end and i know you you get it too from your end from you know the 16 year old girl who wants to go back to cheerleading and she's five and a half months off at her acl and you have to tell her no and now she she looks at you like you're you're the worst person on the planet yeah, you're planet the villain you're holding her back yeah so it's um i think that having more objective data objective data will help make that a lot easier and you know the interesting thing for the listeners again is it seems like the best teams the best programs are the ones that are the ones that embrace the technology right right and they've been doing it for years and, right. and now you're starting to see that more places are doing it because there is some value to it yeah so. and, to, and to your point before about the athletes the ones that have the longevity are the ones that are the cutting edge with whether it be nutrition have a person working with them on a regular basis they're into recovery they're into longevity their body is their stock right right it's just like investing in a stock they're investing in themselves and the only way they can have longevity and make money is having longevity right um so it's interesting how that goes full circle yeah speaking of longevity i think that um you know, I find it interesting as someone who's been so influential in the sports medicine world has really been uh, crucial in developing rehab protocols in, in line with Dr. Andrews for not only for elbows and the Tommy John surgery, but knees and ACL surgery, shoulders and with the rotator cuffs. I think that clearly you have had a very distinguished career. I guess my question going forward, what do you see as your next goals and what do you want your sort of legacy to be from here on out? Yeah, I don't know. You know, just probably um, making better programs, so to speak. We go back to that best treatment, so to speak. And I think the technology, helping the technology advance in areas that is needed. 
as we talked about, you know, embracing like an ACL patient, you know, how much load are they imparting on their knee, especially for, you know, you're not the high level athlete, but that high school kid who we say, okay, you can get on the court and do some shooting, you know, at the school. I don't know what they're doing. I'm not there. And so instead of just doing some stationary shooting, they're doing layups suddenly and cutting. And we can monitor that with, you know, a sensor in their brace that they're wearing. And we right. say their brace, it's not an extra brace. It's the brace that they would be wearing anyway. Currently normally wearing yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Same thing with a shoulder patient or a back patient. You know, it'd be exciting to return somebody back to work, you know, whether you're a police officer or a firefighter. And we can monitor how much force you're imparting on maybe your shoulder or your back and say, oh, okay. You know, we said light duty. Yeah. <laughs> you're supposed to be on the desk. You know, you're fighting fires right. or whatever. You, know, you got the hose up. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to back yeah. it down just a little bit. Maybe yeah. it was a little bit too much. Look at this peak. This peak is really high. Yeah. You know? So I think, you know, for me, that's super exciting. And also some of the modalities we have now, you know, laser and shockwave and, you know, technology has gotten into even some of the exercises like when we're when we're doing like a leg press or a squat we can put you on a device we play like a video game while you're squatting treadmills that unload you where you're like on the moon you're running at 50 percent body weight so all that stuff is super exciting to me I, I i like the technology and i think patients like it too um, they like to be on that that curve so to speak whether it's a surgeon doing something cutting edge which is the best or in rehab whether it be equipment yeah no i agree i think that um you know i think this idea of of med tech uh being uh very influential and in, in gathering a lot more data to serve patients better both before and after surgery is, is definitely something uh, that is going to be much more pertinent in, in the future I guess one of my last questions here, um, growing up, we all pretended to be uh, some sort of athlete that we kind of had in our mind that we wanted to be someday. Do you have one that, that you thought about that were like, I want to be just like, you know, this guy? Jeez. Uh, well, mine is probably not one that people even re remembered or whatever. Growing up in Chicago, you know, I was a big Chicago fan with sports, Bulls, Blackhawks, White Sox, and all that. So Bobby Hall was a hockey player. Of course, Bobby Hall. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I thought I was dating myself. No, not at all. So number nine, Golden yeah. Jet. Um, so Bobby Hall was, you know, my idol hockey player. So I played a lot of sandlot hockey. Never played organi oh, yeah. organizational hockey. No pads. Still have the scars for having no pads. Um, <laughs> Um, and, you know, a dad that didn't think I had stitches, yeah. needed stitches. Yeah, Bobby Hall in those days with Stan Makita and all that yeah. was really cool for oh, me. Yeah, yeah. so That's I wanted awesome. to be like a Bobby Hall type. And he was short, yeah. so I could relate, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was probably it. So That's awesome. Well, um, any uh, final pieces of advice or parting words you have for, you know, listeners, whether it's from a surgical standpoint, whether it's for, you know, athletes, whether it's for coaches, players, anybody, anything that you think that... Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, Probably the biggest thing is don't lock in. Uh, for me, for a healthcare professional, one, one thing I've learned is when you think you've figured it out, <laughs> you haven't. You know, you're too narrow, narrow sighted. Um, there's always, I don't want to say an always a better way, but there's always a way of refining it. Whether it's a surgical technique, you know, it's always getting better, right? Whether it be anchors or the way you're tying knots or not tying knots, securing it, strength, tissue, you know what I mean? Augment, augmenting tissue. I lived through augmenting before, it didn't work, it's back again, but different. So it's interesting how it keeps evolving. Same thing in the rehab world. You know, you think, well, we got this ACL rehab thing down. Well, then all of a sudden we don't. UCLs even. 
you know so i think just keep learning growing and listening to others opinions you know even though you may not agree maybe when you reflect on it later it seems to make sense to you and you maybe you don't do it exactly the same way but maybe you refine it to fit your means and your patient population because we all have different patients and different goals as i mentioned before you know what they do the reason i said that about in france is you know with this big thing with biceps tenodesis well you know i mean it's big here in the states too but in in leon france or in nice france everybody gets it right and everybody does well well you know maybe that's not always the case in the united states yeah yeah well, I think it's a great point. I mean, I think we always, you know, in, in similar words, need to keep looking forward to, to getting better, to honing our skills and, and not being complacent in what we're able to do. Because I think we still have room to improve treatment, uh, whether it's, you know, an ACL injury or shoulder injury, uh, et cetera. So um, uh, on behalf of, of myself and uh, Andrew Sports Medicine and, and the uh, Victory Over Injury podcast, Kevin, I thank you very much for spending time with us and answering questions and, and uh, your insight is incredibly valuable. And I hope uh, everyone listening today uh, sees that as well. So thank you. Yeah, well, I've enjoyed it and good luck to everybody listening and good luck to you as well with the podcast. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time, be well and take care. Goodbye. On the next episode of the Victory Over Injury podcast. Can you describe what was coach like when you first met him? I'll never forget, you know, he comes out of his office and he, you know, he's, Coach Saban is, you know, he's very businesslike. He's very attention to detail. You know, there's not a whole lot of small talk with him. He's just very, this is what we need to get done and this is what we're going to do. Um, and that's how he always is, and I think that's what makes him great. Um, but I could tell immediately that it was all business when we sat down. He talked for just a brief minute about himself and about why he chose to come to Alabama, and then he went straight to me. And the first questions he asked me, and I thought it was really interesting, he asked me about my family. He asked me you know, about where I grew up. He wanted to know about you know, my family, my wife, my daughter, you know, those uh, that part is really important to him. It's a, it's a, it's a part of him that people don't really see. But you know, he wants people around him and in his program that, you know, you know, value family. Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.